I recently heard the one that helps to explain human existence. It was the one that goes into creation and God is busy creating and he starts out and he um, first, he cre- he, along the way of creation, he creates dogs and he creates the dogs and he says to the dogs, your job is to sit on the porch and to bark at anybody that comes by. And, the, and, and part of this, I'm going to reward you. I'm going to give you 20 years of life. And the dogs say, yeah, 20 years seems like a mighty long time to sit on the porch and bark. Why don't we make it 10? We'll give you 10 back. And God's like, yeah, okay. And then God creates um, the monkeys. And he tells them, your job in life is going to be to, to entertain, to do monkey tricks, and to help people to laugh. And for this, I'm going to give you 20 years. And the monkeys say, yeah, 20 years of monkey tricks, it's a long time. Why don't we do like the dogs? We'll give you 10 years back. And God's like, yeah, okay, 10 years. And then God creates the cows. And he creates the cows and he says, your job in life is to be to help the farmer. You go out into the fields and work in the hard sunlight and you're going to make calves and produce milk and do all this. And, but your reward is you get 60 years of life. And the cows are like, yeah, 60 years of life? That's a really long time. Why don't we give you back 40 years and we'll go for 20? And God's like, yeah, okay. And then God creates humans and he tells the humans, okay, your job in life, you get to to sleep and eat and you get to play and you get to marry and you get to enjoy life. And you, your reward for this is you get 20 years. And the humans are like, yeah, mm, that's not really long enough. How about this? How about you give us the 10 years the dogs gave up, the 10 years the monkeys gave up, and the 40 years that the cows gave up? God's like, yeah, okay. So it becomes this great explanation of human existence prototypically because we have our first 20 years where we sleep and eat and play and marry and enjoy life. Then we have 40 years of toil under the sun, producing and doing all this work. And then it's said that it goes from there to 10 years of monkey tricks for grandchildren. And the last 10 years, you sit on the porch and bark at anybody that comes by, explaining human existence. Well, I want to tell you, it's extremely hard to tell a joke to an empty room. (laughs) But at least I didn't hear any groans, or maybe only a few from, mainly only a few from the band and some of my colleagues. But but this idea of looking at human existence um, is actually a really big one. Some of you will know that a few weeks ago, I did a sermon that was on depression and dark places. And in preparing for that sermon, I did a lot of reading. And one of the authors um, that stood out in my mind was talking about the appropriate place of medicine and all of that, but was saying, it was just, he was kind of just raising a question saying, I wonder if it doesn't really ever get to the root of the problem because Oftentimes, in his experience, he said he felt the root of the problem was that people are struggling deeply at big questions of life. What's our meaning? What's our purpose? What's the, the, the narrative arc of this whole thing? And how does it all come together as sort of the root existential crisis that is trying to be, to be treated? And I think that's one of the questions that comes up again and again in life where we ask these bigger questions, ultimately asking, where does the heart find its home? And can we find it here with the things that we do? C.S. Lewis, the, the great Anglican Christian writer from Oxford last century, in Mere Christianity, 
talked about how when you look inside yourself and you see a set of desires that are simply not fulfilled here, that one of the logical conclusions of that is maybe we were made for another world, for a whole other frame of reference, a whole other way than the things that our world oftentimes presents as being the things that should satisfy us, the, the, the money, the power, the whatever these different things are that we want to put in that place for a heart home. Today in our gospel lesson, I think Jesus speaks into this very question about how we're wired and what the deep stuff is as he says these things in John 14. And so I want to go there and look at that um, this morning. And when you start to look at this, the, the chapter that we read from, chapter 14, is one of these chapters that is in the last, you know, 48 hours of Jesus's life before he's going to be on the cross and die. And there's a sense of urgency about what he's doing and about what he's saying. And we get to the start of that reading in verse 6. And Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. And I want to make today's meditation and thought uh, um, sermon all about just that one verse. And to kind of set it up, I want to back up and just kind of look at the context of what's taking place with this. Because we, we think about this, um, we're heading towards the cross in these final 48 hours. Jesus has these disciples who are with him. They've been with him for three years. This is a circle of followers who are, they are all in. They are all in. They have left long ago their jobs, their families, their environments, their whole situations, and they followed him. They've seen him do all these different kinds of things, and they really believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They really believe their conception of that is that he's going to eventually do away with the Romans and their dominion and their occupying of Jerusalem, the whole thing. He's going to do away with all that. But here in the home stretch, they've started to get concerned maybe to have experience a real degree of turmoil that's going on because Jesus is saying things that they're not reconciling with this vision they have. Jesus is saying that he's got to suffer, that he's going to die. Jesus is saying a little while longer and I'm not going to be with you because I'm going to this other place. And they're, they're, their world is in a turmoil. They're, they're freaking out at some level, right? And I think it's, uh, it shows part of Jesus's incredible compassion how he handles this because I put myself in that place and I'm thinking if I'm in that place three years they've watched these miracles they've seen the teaching they've done all these things I'd be really impatient with these guys like how can you not get this but Jesus answers with compassion his opening words in um, the gospel that we read is don't let your hearts be troubled He's not chewing them out. He's telling them, okay, hold on, relax. Let's work through this together. And I think for us at this moment, we pause and we think about our own spiritual journeys. Sooner or later, if, if you're like most of us, you're going to come to a turmoil. And it's not that Jesus is going to pull you aside and, and chew you out. He's going to say, if we listen, don't let your heart experience trouble like this. Hold on. Let's look at this together. And Jesus begins to unpack this, right? He tells them, well, look, I'm going away. Don't panic. I am going away, but I'm going away to my father's 
mansion, to prepare all these different rooms, to prepare a room for you. And, and, and Thomas, you got to love Thomas, because Thomas is the disciple who's always too honest to let stuff go that he just doesn't get. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to do this. You know where I'm going. And Thomas is like, yeah, no, I, no, we don't. We don't know where you're going. He's the one who's always going to raise his hand and say, yeah, no, don't know. And I'm always mindful that when you think about the Gospels and people, sometimes you want to suggest that this was written by followers later, kind of doctoring things. This is something you would never put in there if you were doctoring the passages. It's like Thomas is lost. He's like, yeah, we don't know where you're going. We don't understand this. You're always speaking in riddles and we don't really know what you mean. And he speaks into that saying, really, how do we know we're going to, where are you leading us? Is this to a place where our hearts are going to rest? How are we going to get to this place? And Jesus answers back into that context. We get that sixth verse where he says, that I am the way, the truth, the life. And I want to look at those for just a minute and talk about those. Um, because this is like a huge thing, right? What Jesus says in this. And the beginning thing that he says is that he says, I am the way. And when he says that, there's this echo, I think, of Isaiah talking about the way to the new Jerusalem. But he's gonna, he is the way to this better life, this better place that we get. He's the way to getting beyond this slavery of, of sin and death. He is the way that's going to lead us across these different things that pull us from God. These different chasms or these different whatever. He's, he's the way that's going to help us get beyond all the things that would pull us away from our true selves or from him or from our real humanity. Jesus says he's going to go prepare these places. He's not talking about doing carpentry again in some literal way. He's talking about making a way where all our darkness and sin can go. It will be put on him at the cross, right? He's talking about teaching us a way of life. He's talking about teaching us rhythms of grace. He's talking about making a way forward. He is the way, and he's going to show us the way. I think when he says this, it's a little bit like, uh, I know for the younger generations watching, you, you don't get, you don't know anything but GPS. But for those who are older, I can tell you the stories about this. There was a time when you would come to a city you didn't know and you're trying to find something and you couldn't find it. And you had to go into a store or gas station and ask the attendant, I'm trying to get to this place. And if it was like my hometown, it'd be some guy would come out and say, well, what you need to do is go two blocks this way and three blocks that way and then go five blocks over there. When you get to Nanny Stand, take a left and go around a curve and you'll see it. And you're th thinking, how's that going to work out? And eventually this guy just said, oh, you know what? Just follow me in my truck. Let's get in there and go this way. And that's kind of what Jesus, I think, does. He's not only making the way, but he's eventually saying, let me grab your hand and show you the way. I want you to come and experience rhythms of grace. I want you to come experience a home for your heart. I want you to come find what's real, the way you're wired, and where you're going to find these, these deep things. Jesus is saying, I am the way. And we're reminded that part of our temptation we deal with again and again is all the things we want to try to take us to, the, to there that just doesn't go there, right? I thought that um, in his best-selling book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller uh, put together a really good list 
of all the ways that we mess that up and get it wrong. I want to read just some of these. He's talking about how the way involves putting God at the center of our life. But we again and again put something else at the center. And these things are good things. They're just not the ultimate thing. This is what he says. He says, if you center your life and identity on your spouse or partner, you'll be emotionally dependent, jealous, and controlling. The other person's problems will be overwhelming to you. He says, if you center your life and identity on your family and children, you'll try to live your life through your children until they resent you or have no self of their own. At worst, they may, you may abuse them when they displease you. He says, if you center your life and your identity around your career and your work, you'll be a driven workaholic and a boring, shallow person. At worst, you'll lose family and friends. And if your career goes poorly, you'll develop deep depression. He says, if you center your life around money and possessions, you'll be eaten up by worry or jealousy about money. You'll be willing to do unethical things to maintain your lifestyle, which will eventually blow up your life. He says, if you center your life and identity around pleasure and gratification and comfort, you'll find yourself getting addicted to something. You'll become chained to the escape strategies by which you avoid the hardness of life. He says, if you center your life and identity around relationships and approval, you'll be constantly overly hurt by criticism and thus always losing friends. You'll fear confronting others and therefore will be an, a useless friend. He goes further and says, if you even center your life around noble causes, you'll divide the world into good and bad, demonize your opponents, and ironically, you'll be controlled by your enemies. Without them, you'll have no purpose. And finally, he goes further to talk about dry religion this way. He says, if you center your life and identity on religion and morality, you will, if you're living up to your moral standards, be proud, self-righteous, and cruel. If you don't live up to your moral standards, your guilt will be utterly devastating. Jesus is meant to be at the center. He'll teach us the way, the rhythms of grace that lead us to these great places. And the truth about it is, this way that Jesus is talking about is one that will guide us our entire journey here. Because as one of my uh, professors, actually Mother Mary and my professors, um, Alice McKenzie, used to say, Jesus is a gift from God the Father. Because his teaching and his presence will encourage and challenge us. And throughout our lives, when we wonder, are we on track? We keep coming back to this, the way. When we ask, how do we encounter God in our life? We come back to this, that Jesus is the way. And we hold that up and think about what that means and where we are in it. And every time we keep coming back to it, we go to a deeper place. Jesus is the way. Jesus says next that he's the truth. And he's not saying that he's, he's not trying to just focus on intellectual truth. He is the embodiment of truth. He actually embodies it. You know, I don't know about you if you've had some great moral teachers in your life, but they're kind of in a different category, right? Because they're teaching on a different plane about what, how you live the moral life. But none of them you've ever encountered here who've taught you 
would ever be able to say anything but I've taught you something that is true. Jesus says, not only have I taught you something true, but I embody it. I am truth. You want to see what that life looks like? Look at me. If you want to know what God the Father looks like, we look at Jesus and what he's like. Paul says in um, Colossians 1 how Jesus gives tangible form to the invisible God. He shows what he's like. If we want to know what God the Father's like, we look at Jesus. If you want to know what, it, what he's like, you see what he does. Jesus today, his compassion with his disciples and turmoil. Jesus, when he encounters the promiscuous woman at the well, how he treats her with compassion. When, he, when the, all these guys are ready to stone the woman caught in adultery, you think about how Jesus reacts, telling, pointing out their own sin, telling them to pick up the stone and throw it on themselves, really. Or we think about all the ways Jesus held, um, hung out with the tax collectors. All the different ways that Jesus again and again shows compassion and mercy and love. We look at him, we see what God is. We see what his truth is. And we see what it's like. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. And Jesus rounds us out by saying, I am the life. And we're reminded that Jesus isn't turning things upside down to say that everything's about the political and the social. He's talking the spiritual and the physical, the physical, how we live out here. This time when Jesus wants the Holy Spirit to come and empower us to live life here in the now and the present in this world for his purposes and for his kingdom. We've got things to do. And in doing that, he's inviting us into a life. I think one of the best passages of scripture to me that embodies this in its own way is St. Paul writing from prison to the Philippians in Philippians 1.21, where he says to live is Christ and to die is gain. What Paul is saying is when we're about living in this in-between times, if we're, when we're leaning into God's purposes, when we're letting the Spirit use us as an instrument, when we're doing all of this, life itself is Christ. He is the life. But then when we die, it's gain. There's a whole new world when we embrace it and when we follow it. There are deep questions in life that we face. The um, theologian Paul Tillich last century described the human condition as one of three fears. That we have ultimately, we have a fear of meaningless, fear of death, and a fear of guilt. And into all of that, we come back to Jesus and we look at him saying, take my hand and come with me because I am the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you love us so much. You don't leave us helpless without direction. If, you, if we will let you, you will take our hand and lead us in the way. Help us to experience your truth and to find real life. We pray that you would do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.